to the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Leah Heigl and I am here with my co-host Aidan Muir and today we're talking all things artificial sweeteners. So artificial sweeteners have been around for decades. The demand for them really comes down to the fact that they're, they're sweet and they're delicious but they contain no calories. So a little bit of like having your cake and eating it too. Um, but this is a really broad topic. So we're going to go through kind of all the pros and cons, all the questions that people typically have about artificial sweeteners, but we're not going to have a chance to go through it in as much detail as I think it needs. Um, but we'd, we'd be here all day if we went through all of it. Yeah, so we're going to try and keep it just to like the 30 minutes. I know we won't cover everything in that. There's going to be gaps, obviously, but we're going to do the best that we can. So very briefly, going through categories. So there's, they're usually split up into three categories so of like non-nutritive sweeteners. So we're looking at like sugar alcohols, low-calorie sweeteners or natural sweeteners, and then artificial sweeteners. So sugar alcohols, not really talking about that much today, but like that stuff like sorbitol, mannitol, xylitol, Oftentimes they have a little bit of calories, but it's kind of a bit of a separate category. Your natural sweeteners often will fall into this category, even though they're not technically artificial sweeteners, but that's stuff like stevia, um, monk fruit, like there's a few things that go in there. Mostly what we're talking about today, though, are artificial sweeteners. So we're talking about sucralose, aspartame, saccharin, and those in that category. Generally, the reason most people reach for non-calorie sweeteners or artificial sweeteners is to manage calorie intake. So going back to the fact that most of them contain very little, if any, calories, that's like their big selling point. Um, So it makes sense that the uptake of these products has happened quite fast, particularly in people wanting to lose weight, manage their weight. But in regards to weight management, the research on utilizing these kinds of sweeteners is really, really mixed. Um, So there is some research to, I guess, indicate that potentially um, artificial sweeteners might increase appetite and actually lead to some weight gain. Uh, But then we also have other research showing that they were actually quite beneficial for weight management and weight loss. Um, And then a whole bunch of research showing pretty neutral effects. So at this point, it really is kind of a mixed bag of results. Um, One systematic review that was done in 2019 included several studies um, that showed no association between non-sugar sweeteners and weight gain. So that's pretty promising. And then upon further analysis, they even found that these non-sugar sweeteners used by overweight or obese individuals, particularly people that weren't trying to lose weight, actually reduced their body weight. Um, So generally a consensus has not been reached on how to use low calorie sweeteners and their effect on body weight long term. Um, But I feel like overall, it's quite promising. Yeah, I'll I'll jump in with a few thoughts. So like a lot of people, there's two main criticisms I see on that topic. One is that it tricks your body into thinking that sugar is coming, so you store body fat anyway. Yeah, and I've seen that one. Yeah, that's a really common one. And another one that's like a very blanket statement, but it's like that's just as bad for you as drinking full sugar Coke, for example, when talking about Diet Coke. Like people saying like those two lines. And it's like, well, firstly, from the fact that it's like the research is like unclear, <laughs> it's clear that that's not a thing. <laughs> like it's clear that it's not worse for you or whatever, like in this particular topic. But taking a step further... I think thinking about it critically, it's pretty clear from the research that it it is what it says it is. It is zero calories and it still is coming down to calories in, calories out and stuff like that. So then the bigger thing comes more so down to behavior. Like if you had a 2000 calorie diet with zero artificial sweeteners and 2000 calorie diet with a small to moderate amount of artificial sweeteners, 
I think the results come out exactly the same. It's just how does it affect the rest of your results? And that's also a big thing or the rest of like your habits, behaviors, all those things. And that's where it gets really confusing because it's kind of like a lot of stuff is based on food frequency questionnaires. If we're just looking at stuff that's like how many artificial sweeteners per day do these people eat what, or, what, or drink or whatever, what do they weigh? That's not really answering the question like because that can be a bit of reverse causality to a certain degree. If somebody like because one of the things that does crop up in the research quite a bit is people who are heavier typically do consume more artificial sweeteners. But that's also a hard one because it's also got that concept of healthy user bias where it's like people who are trying to limit their intake of artificial sweeteners could also be doing other behaviours as well. The next thing to consider from a behaviour perspective that I am really interested in is how does your taste perception change when you have a lot of sweet foods? This isn't unique to artificial sweeteners. This is just unique to eating sweet foods. But if you have a lot of sweet foods, like say you have a ton of diet soft drink, does your perception of the taste of fruit change? Does your perception of the taste of even vegetables change? Does it change what other foods you want to eat? Does it change your behaviors in that way? Like that's something that has been looked in, particularly in children, where it's like if you give children a lot of sweet foods, they don't like fruit as much. Like they don't like, and like, is it is it really different from an adult perspective? Like, if we have a lot of these things, does it change that? That doesn't mean it's a guarantee. Like, if we look at it from the perspective of like, what if one person finds it so much easier to stick to their diet when they have a can of diet soft drink when they're craving one, and that changes their behaviors in a positive way because it's like, well, if they didn't have that option, are they going to have sugar instead? Um, but what if at the other end of the spectrum, it does like the worst case scenario I just kind of talked about, where it's kind of like people no longer want to eat fruits or vegetables anywhere near as much as they would if they never had these foods. And then I guess you've also got the potential increased appetite that's sometimes kind of linked to artificial sweeteners as well from a behaviour standpoint. Um, So there have been a few studies that have shown somewhat of a link between increased appetite and people, you know, that that are having artificial sweetened beverages. So if you are having a lot of these artificial sweeteners and your appetite is increased, does that lead to more calorie intake or, you know, how does that come out? So there was one study that showed that even though people were consuming um, these artificial sweeteners and they reported an increase in appetite, that overall they were still actually eating a thousand kilojoules less than the other group. So even though they've had this appetite increase, they were still eating less calories overall. So I think sometimes that increased appetite argument falls a little bit flat yeah. when you consider everything. And like to a certain degree, you can also use it as a bit of a tool. Like an example I see with some people is it's like they have one gap in the day where they're normally hungry and they chuck a diet soft drink there and sometimes it solves it. It doesn't always, sometimes it does. And like that's, it's an individual kind of situation. And another study on that topic that I'm aware of is there was one say where they the rule they gave people with no further context is have 700 ml of diet soft drink per day. And the other group got told never have diet soft drink, just drink water. Water is all you get to drink. And in terms of weight loss, the group that was told to drink 700 ml of diet soft drink lost significantly more weight than the water group did, which is like, it's almost ironic to a certain degree where it's kind of like a lot of people like myself included. I'm always one of those people like don't overdo artificial sweeteners. I do still say that, but a lot of people will be like, water is always best. It's like, well, in that case, like the artificial sweeteners actually did outperform the water in terms of that metric. Yeah. And even just anecdotally, like working with clients, I can see it as a helpful tool when someone's in a calorie deficit, 
um, and they might be struggling with that a little bit, it can help with compliance occasionally for some, for, uh, honestly, for me, for a lot of people I work with yeah. to have that Pepsi Max in the afternoon or after dinner. Yeah. Um, and it just helps with dietary compliance. Cool. So moving on to another topic, we'll be talking about gut health. So gut health is one of the most complex areas and it's something that um, a lot of people get really passionate about. Hey, so like there was, I still remember it pretty vividly, but there was like a phase um, last year. I went, I went and watched like a CrossFit Games kind of event thing. And like my Instagram, like Instagram DMs just blew up with mainly one guy just like hitting me with this one study being like, are you going to change your opinion on artificial sweeteners based on this? And it was, um, Dad said it was a um, Petri dish study. Like it was just oh, like. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've got the title of it lined up somewhere. But yeah, I can't find that real quickly. But it was a Petri dish study and it was basically, oh no, I've got it here. So artificial sweeteners negatively regulate pathogenic characteristics of two model gut bacteria, E. coli and E. faecalis. Um, That's the name of the study. And basically it's a Petri dish study. They put a bunch of artificial sweeteners on the like intestinal lining in a Petri dish and it caused pathogenic changes. It doesn't really mean anything for humans. <laughs> it's kind of like the moment you touch chuck any other like any other variable in it kind of messes things like that changes and everything like that what if you put fiber into the diet like what if there's fiber in the diet and that's also influencing the gut microbiome what if it's influencing like there's so many other variables um it's not overly relevant but like that that's jumping the gun a little bit let's talk about some other stuff so there was a study that you brought up about um the art it's titled it's from 2014 titled Artificial sweeteners induce glucose tolerance or glucose intolerance by altering the gut microbiome. Did you want to mention that at all? Talk about that. So this is the most commonly referenced study I find when people are talking about kind of changes in glucose tolerance and artificial sweeteners, because I see that come up a fair amount. Um, so basically they linked changes with reductions in glucose tolerance with artificial sweeteners in doing this study. So this particular study was using rats. So obviously that's not going to be the most applicable to humans um, because we're not rats. Uh, But they basically fed these rats uh, a mix of sucralose, saccharin and aspartame for 11 weeks and then tested their glucose tolerance. Um, And they did find that their glucose tolerance did decrease over the course of that 11 weeks. Yeah, and another thing they found in that study, which is part of why it made waves, was that it they also then did food frequency questionnaires on humans and were like, how much artificial sweeteners do you consume every day slash week or whatever? And then they measured their gut microbiome and they're like, oh, so they've got similar characteristics to what these rodents developed over the 11 weeks, basically. And the, they also had reductions in glucose tolerance. So like, it's kind of interesting to look at it from that perspective and it's kind of being like, okay, people who have more artificial sweeteners seem to end up in that category. It's not really a nail in the coffin, but it is definitely something that's interesting. From the rodents' perspective, though, like, they had a lot of artificial sweeteners. Like, we talked about this this morning being like, okay, like, how much do they have? And, like, I, I've 100% got confirmation on it, and it was a lot. A lot, yeah. <laughs> it was, like, um, a 5% solution of saccharin. So, like, they were, it was in their drinking water, and, like, 5% of the drinking water was saccharin or aspartame, or, like, they got different variations on it, and they also had sucrose in there as well. Um, so just straight sugar. Um, but when we think about these sweeteners, they're hundreds of thousands times sweeter than sugar in some cases. And at minimum, they're like 100 times sweeter than sugar. So it's like if we're looking at 5%, like imagine just putting your water and like having 5% of that being sugar. But then thinking about it like actually in proportion being like 
hundred times that amount or whatever. It, it is a lot. Like that's a lot more than like humans are actually consuming. But the whole thing about the food frequency questionnaire is kind of interesting. But like that would be more interesting if we didn't have human data, more controlled data. So firstly, we've got a 2020 review from Grayling et al., which identified that there's no acute glycemic and insulin response to non-caloric sweeteners. Um, that's really important because a lot of people say it spikes glucose or insulin or whatever, but that's just acute stuff. That's like not like what they mentioned in the original study we were just talking about is chronic, like over 11 weeks or whatever. So this short-term, it doesn't do anything from that perspective. That's still really useful information. I don't want to brush over like that. It's still useful information. But then the next one I want to talk about is a 2021 randomized control trial which is really important because randomized control trials is like the peak of evidence before we look at like um, systematic reviews of randomized control trials. So from 2021, titled High Dose Saccharin Supplementation Does Not Induce Gut Microbiota Changes or Glucose Intolerance in Healthy Humans and Mice. Like the title sums it up. But basically they gave two weeks of saccharin consumption at the maximum acceptable dosage, which is a lot. Like, you know how people talk about like... (laughs) 21 cans of Diet Coke is the equivalent of the maximum acceptable dosage of aspartame. Yeah. Like they use that stuff a lot. And it's kind of like, that's a lot of saccharin that they use. They use the maximum amount. Like they use that kind of equivalent. That's stupidly high, more than anybody's going to be consuming. And they did that every day for two weeks. Two weeks is not long, but as I talked about with the low FODMAP diet in the last podcast, um, things change quickly in the microbiome. Like four weeks of the low FODMAP diet dramatically changes things. Therefore, two weeks of this at a stupidly high dosage should show some form of change, which it didn't. And it didn't affect glucose tolerance. Um, And then the next study I wanted to briefly touch on, I'll probably finish up on studies after that, but they they did the same thing or a similar thing with aspartame and sucralose. And they had stupidly high dosages of that for two weeks. And there was no change in the microbiome as assessed by fecal samples. So basically, like, we're not really seeing these changes when done in human studies. I'm not ruling it out. Like it's a possibility for sure. And that's something based on that previous study being like, isn't it interesting that in the food frequency questionnaires and measuring their gut microbiome that there were changes, but it's like when we do have things that's more concrete, actually measuring this in like a controlled setting, it's not coming out anywhere near as clear cut as you would think if you just looked at that previous study. Yeah. I think that's what makes this a really hard topic to navigate. Yeah. Is that nothing in it is clear cut um, so we also know that stevia, so not an artificial sweetener, but a naturally occurring a non-nutritive sweetener, um, may also affect the gut microbiota composition, but more studies are really needed to confirm this too. Like it is again, a really mixed bag of things. Um, and then stevia specifically, I found a lot fewer uh, research papers and stuff on stevia in particular. Um, so yeah more needed there uh sugar alcohols so namely things like polyols they're something that we can we can talk about so the research behind them and their links to gut health um are more in relation to ibs so people with ibs sometimes do have adverse gastrointestinal reactions to the consumption of polyols um and that's really true for things like sorbitol and mannitol which is found in a lot of naturally occurring foods yeah, and that's also a key point. There's like if you give a ton of like mannitol, maltitol, isomalt, like all of those kind of things to people without IBS, if you just give them a lot, a lot, it's they'll get symptoms anyway. So people who some people people with IBS are often more like they're more likely to get symptoms. And this is also a kind of key point where it's kind of like we talk about gut health and we come to the conclusion it's like oh it doesn't change the microbiota, and then people always jump in and they'll be like, 
yeah, but like I get symptoms every time I touch it. It's like, well, firstly, that sugar alcohols we just mentioned there, it's not technically artificial sweeteners, but like even with that, that's kind of why it's like it's not just like gut health and IBS symptoms don't 100% overlap. Like we can talk about both and like they there is some overlap, but they are also separate topics and like something can be a trigger for IBS without really affecting the microbiome in the long term. Yeah, just because polyols give you symptoms doesn't mean it's degrading gut health. Yeah, yeah. So another big one, cancer. Do you want to talk about cancer? Yeah, let's start like at the very kind of basics. So worries around artificial sweeteners. I feel like cancer was the first thing people were really, really concerned about when it came to artificial sweeteners. Um, And this particularly arose even in the 1970s. So when saccharin was shown in in one study to cause bladder cancer in, in, I think there were rats. Um, So this did trigger further research in the space um, and particularly human studies. And so far to date, there's not been any kind of link between saccharin and bladder cancer or any other kinds of cancer this far. Next one we'll talk about is aspartame. So I find generally people are most scared of aspartame. (laughs) Do you feel that? Yeah, for a lot of reasons, but yeah. Yeah. Um, So before it's a FDA approval in 1981, aspartame did undergo lots of laboratory testing to assess its cancer risk. Um, And the FDA, you know, found no adverse adverse effects. So aspartame will probably likely always be tainted by this one particular study that did come out in 2005 that showed that very, very high doses of it might cause lymphoma and leukemia. So this particular study, again, was done in rats um, and the research was assessed by the FDA and they deemed it to be unfit to kind of take into consideration when they were thinking about, oh no, is this safe for human consumption? Um, But every time we kind of go down that aspartame topic, this study always comes up in terms of it, oh, it causes lymphoma, it causes leukemia. Um, But again, this has only been shown in rats. So it's really hard to assess whether that is something that does happen in humans as well at this point with the research that we have. Yeah. I think a big issue with a lot of this is it's almost like artificial sweeteners seem too good to be true. Like yeah. it, it's like we're, we're looking for the flaw. Like we're trying to find, it's like, no, nah, surely not. Like surely it doesn't make food taste nice and have zero calories and have no detrimental effects. Like there's got to be a catch and, and people, and like the other key thing is the fact that it has artificial in the name is another key thing. Like a lot of people are very much more receptive to things like stevia from what I can see working with people because it's a natural sweetener. It has natural in the name Um, because like it it does taint a lot of these things. Like it's kind of like if people didn't view it through these lens, would they be as concerned about this? Like some of the things that I I question or think about is it's kind of like we often talk about creatine being a really safe supplement it's got about 30 years of like long-term data. It's got a bit more than 30 years, but like a lot of the long-term data is like People have been taking it for 30 years, no adverse effects. Not many people get concerned with it. But like artificial sweeteners, like, oh, these have been in the system for 100 years. People have had high dosages for... That's true. Yeah. I guess in comparison to other things, and particularly supplements, yeah. we have actually been consuming artificial sweeteners for quite some time now. Yeah. But I, I think we're kind of reaching a peak in terms of our consumption. Like, I don't think we're consuming this much in like yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. And like another, like, I always talk about this with artificial sweeteners, but it's kind of like... Um, a lot of health conscious people might be avoiding diet soft drinks, but they might be having protein powder, which has 
artificial sweeteners. They might be having pre-workout, which has artificial sweeteners. They might be having BCAAs or other supplements, and like it can turn into a pretty long list pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, the way I view it, like from everything that I see with it, is like I see it as relatively safe. I see that I'm going to quote Lane Norton here, but every single randomized control trial that has ever been done on artificial sweeteners has shown no adverse health effects that's his words i'm using that quote because i'm like I, I do think there are some that have shown some like it's a bit more complex than that like yeah, yeah but like using his words like and the fact that it's like debated is kind of like it's like okay like it's clearly not worse for you than sugar it's clearly not like if you give people high amounts of sugar we know things go wrong like we know bad things happen um it's clearly not tricking your body into like all of these kind of things um but i still do have caution like i i'm not personally out there being like completely fine i'm going to replace all my water with diet soft drink for the rest of my life like i'm not like that level most things i think artificial sweeteners can be over consumed and probably to at some point we're going to see some kind of adverse effect yeah. like most things yeah um so i think yeah i wouldn't throw caution to the wind and and have four liters of pepsi max per day but mm. i'm also not going to give up my one can with dinner for sure so this has been a complex topic We've obviously not covered every single thing. It's such a deep, deep topic, but I'm kind of happy with how we've done it in this short time frame that we've got. So um, hopefully it has been helpful for some of you guys listening. But apart from that, thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.